Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Elizabeth Stanley. Liz Stanley is a Georgetown University professor and the creator of mindfulness-based mind fitness training referred to as MFIT for short. MFIT is taught to thousands in civilian and military high-stress environments to help people in those environments be better resilient in high-stress situations. Liz is a long-standing mindfulness practitioner and a certified practitioner of somatic experiencing, a body-based trauma therapy. With Sounds True, Liz Stanley has created a new eight-week online course, bringing MFIT to the online world, trauma-sensitive mindfulness training. Throughout this online course, Liz Stanley guides people through the neurobiology of stress, trauma, and resilience. And she gives us interactive tools and daily practices so that we can recover, heal, and increase our ability to thrive in stressful times. Originally, I thought that MFIT was designed for people who had high-stress jobs, people who were first responders, people working as firefighters, as EMTs, as police professionals, serving in the military, Listening to Liz and feeling the amount of stress so many of us are under during this time, it's clear MFIT is for all of us. Here you can listen to Liz Stanley describe how our mindfulness training must be trauma-sensitive and trauma-informed. Here's my conversation with Liz Stanley. Liz, I wanted to start with our listeners getting a more thorough introduction to you. I know that you were born into a military family. What I'd love to know more of is how your upbringing and early life and then service in the military led you to want to design a mindfulness program for active military members. So Tammy, I come, as you said, from a very long warrior tradition. I'm the ninth generation in my family to serve. And um, I'm the first generation who didn't serve during some form of combat. Um, And as a result, my mind and body were wired at this unconscious level 
from the prior unresolved chronic stress and trauma of my parents and their parents and their parents. And it had a real effect early on in my life. Um, I experienced a lot of childhood adversity, a lot of chronic stress and trauma in childhood that had detrimental effects um, on my wiring and that also led to these very unconscious perceptual patterns that drew trauma to me. So, uh, you know, it became kind of a vicious cycle. And by the time I served in the military myself, I was overseas, served several um, very stressful military deployments. While I was in Bosnia, I had a near-death experience. I stopped breathing completely. Um, by the time I got to graduate school, my system was kind of done. I had been socialized as many warriors are, many people in high stress professions are, to suck it up and drive on, to sort of push it under, to suppress it, to compartmentalize and to power through, to keep going. And we can do that, our minds and bodies can do that for a fair amount of time, but at some point, um, the cost of that comes due. My body really bore the burden of that denial and suppression, and it came out sideways. And, physical health problems, um, in PTSD and depression, and eventually even in losing my eyesight um, for a period of time, which was kind of like my cosmic frying pan upside the head. And it made me realize I needed to learn a new way of being. Like I had to learn to do this differently. Um, and so in my own healing journey, um, I began to see how much the different tools that I was learning to heal my own mind and body could be so helpful for other people who are working in high stress environments um, to really improve their performance during stress and to help their minds and bodies recover because we have, our society has this very imbalanced understanding of performance. We focus so much on the performing and not on the recovery and it leads to these imbalances that show up over time. And we don't always connect the dots of how those pieces fit together. So I wanted to share that. Um, and it, you know, there's nothing that I teach that I didn't learn first in my own mind and body, and then from observing it in so many other minds and bodies that I've worked with. Mm -hmm. Now, Liz, in addition to creating the MFIT, Mindfulness-Based Mind Training Fitness Program, that sounds true, is now partnered with you to bring online for people. In addition to creating that training program, you've written a book called Widen the Window. And here at the beginning of our conversation, I'd love for you to explain to our listeners this concept of widening the window. Yes. So... Our window is our window of tolerance to stress arousal. And when we're inside our window, we can keep um, all of our decision-making, um, attention, other executive functions online, fully online. And when we're inside our window, it's much easier for us to function effectively during stress, recover from stress afterwards, and keep all those deliberate decision-making skills online. This is the place where we can access choice and it's also the place where we can connect with other people socially, um, give and receive social support during stress. So everybody has a window. Our window is wired throughout our life. It starts being wired before we're even born while we're still in the womb. And then in the book, I lay out the different pathways by which we can narrow our window. People with wider windows 
are much more tolerant of uncertainty and ambiguity. They're much more flexible when life throws a curveball, when um, you know things don't go the way we want them to, the way we've planned, the way we want them to. They're much more comfortable with difficult people and challenging situations, and they can keep their social skills online during stress. They can handle conflict effectively and not sort of act out. The reason why I talk about it as a window, and there are other um, people who talk about it as a window too, is because it is something that we can narrow or wire as a result, uh, narrow or, or widen as a result of our repeated experiences. And you know, we can widen our window through repeated choices that help our neurobiology to recover um, so that we have more capacity during stress. Resilience is not something we have or we don't. It's something we can train in our minds and bodies. Now, how do I know in any given moment, Liz, if I'm within this window of effectively acting in a situation? I mean, I think other people probably could tell you pretty well <laughs> whether I'm in or out, but how do I know in, internally whether I'm inside or outside my window of effective integrated action? Um, that's a great question, Tammy. So when we're inside our window, we are able to consciously up and down regulate our stress arousal or our emotions to be able to keep ourselves kind of at a moderate arousal level that lets us keep our attention focused. It lets us think creatively, problem solve, ask and receive information from other people, be aware of what's going on and make access choice, feel like we have some agency in the situation. When we've moved outside of our window, we're much more likely to have our stress and our emotions driving our behavior, driving our decisions. That's when we're much more likely to be impulsive or reactive or act out. Um, that's when we're much more likely to do some of that overriding of what's going on in our minds and bodies like I did for decades. Um, and that's also where we're much more likely to have our survival brain, the part of our brain that is ass assessing threats, to have that part of our brain code us as powerless um, or helpless so we can end up in a response that is either apathetic or feeling overwhelmed or feeling um, you know, paralyzed and unable to, to act. That's a response on the freeze spectrum. Mm -hmm. So is it fair to say that with the design of MFIT, what you're trying to do is help people who are in high stress situations, whether it's out in military combat or someone who's a firefighter or a police professional or working as a first responder in some fashion in the healthcare field, anybody in that situation, you want them to have as wide a window as possible in their profession. And I'd be curious to know what that means specifically for these professionals operating in high stress environments, what that looks like in those high stress environments. I'd like, before I answer that piece, Tammy, I wanna pick up on something you said slightly earlier in, in your comment there. You're right, the goal is to have the widest window possible because Trauma occurs whenever our survival brain perceives us to be helpless, powerless, or lacking control. 
And knowing that, the best way to ensure that trauma doesn't happen is when we can access agency. And we can access agency when we're inside our window. So the wider our window, the more likely we can access agency. The narrower window, the more likely it is we'll experience traumatic stress and then all of the kind of downstream effects that come from not recovering from trauma and having challenges with healing. Um, the less agency we perceive we have, the more traumatic it's likely to be. That's the principle on which I built MFIP. So someone who is working in a high stress profession like first responders or right now during the coronavirus pandemic, you know, all of the essential healthcare workers who are coping with really challenging situations that might make them more likely to fall into this position of feeling powerless or helpless. Um, if someone has this very wide window, they're going to be able to keep their decision-making online they're going to be able to evaluate which things are under their control versus aren't and make peace with the things that aren't. They're going to be able to focus their attention and not get lost in distractions. They're going to be able to um, actively call on what is important that they know in their memory versus kind of not having problems with short-term memory. And they're not going to let anxiety or impatience or other challenging emotions start to filter their decision making. Finally, someone who is inside their window is going to be much less likely to rely on the coping habits that actually add to our stress load. I, In the book um, and in MFIT, I talk about these as stress reaction cycle habits. These are things that feel good in the short term. They soothe us immediately, but they're actually not helping us get true recovery. Things like relying on too much caffeine or nicotine or alcohol or um, adrenaline seeking behaviors, um, infidelity. There's a whole range of different habits that we use to kind of feel better in the short term, but that are actually making stress worse over the long term. And when someone is very stressed in a high stress environment, they're more likely as their window narrows to rely on those habits. And set the stage for stress and trauma down the road. Liz, at the beginning of the MFIT training program and in your book, Widen the Window, you teach a lot about neuroscience and the model of how our mind-body system works as a way to frame everything that you teach. And I think it would be helpful here at the beginning, first of all, to know why, why you emphasize that so much. And then secondly, share with our listeners the basic model. You mentioned a little bit that we have this survival brain and you're trying to help us find the place of agency, but you describe all this and you teach all this from a framework of neuroscience. I think that'd be very helpful for our listeners to get the basics. Yes, absolutely. When I was first trying to widen my own window, to recover from PTSD and depression and all of my respiratory problems and regain my eyesight. As I was having these experiences, I was wondering why are these things happening to me? And why do I respond in particular ways? And so I wanted to understand that. And as I learned about the way that our minds and bodies are wired, my thinking brain, the, the parts of my brain that make conscious decisions, my thinking brain found it incredibly helpful to understand why my mind and body were acting the way they were, why I had the symptoms of dysregulation I did, 
why I responded in certain ways in situations, you know, in my past. And it was so liberating for me to understand that this was neurobiological wiring that had not been under my control when it first was wired. And that helped me take it much less personally. Um, it helped me kind of loosen these cycles of shame and self-judgment that I had been caught in. Um, and it also sort of floored me the more I learned about how much these things had been conditioned in early childhood and how much that set me on this lifelong trajectory, you know, that played out because I wasn't aware of it. And I want readers of the book and participants who take the course to have this same understanding so that if they are coping with symptoms of dysregulation, they're not going to beat themselves up during the recovery process. You know, we get so attached to our stories and narratives about why things are the way they are. And then we can we often criticize ourselves for lack of willpower or lack of self-discipline. And we expect that we can somehow just will ourselves to be better. But, you know, one of the important pieces of the model that I'll talk about in a second is survival, the, the recovery process, the healing process, these are not up to think our thinking brain. And willpower is a thinking brain function. Survive, the, the recovery functions and, and the healing functions all belong to and are controlled by the survival brain. And so when we try to will ourselves like to have a stronger willpower, stronger self-discipline, and then those strategies don't work, we somehow think that's a problem with us. You know, it isn't. It's that's because recovery and healing are survival brain jobs. And so I want everyone to understand that when we're experiencing stress arousal or trauma or negative emotions or irrational impulses or urges to do violent things or harm ourselves, you know, th those are just past neurobiological conditioning playing out. It's not saying anything about who we are. And when we can understand that, it opens up these choice points where we can interrupt that conditioning and we can choose something else. We can decondition it and rewire and condition something better. And so for me, at least the best path to making better choices is self-understanding. And I want people to have that self-understanding. That was a long answer, but let me explain now more about the model. <laughs> okay. Please. So um, in the book uh, and in MFIT, I talk about us having a thinking brain and a survival brain. I want to be clear, these are brain regions that have overlapping circuitry, but the reason I divide them out in this way is um, it helps to understand which functions are under our conscious control, which functions are not under our conscious control. The thinking brain, and if anyone has read Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, he uses this dual pathway model. Um, I just use thinking brain and, and, and survival brain. So the thinking fast part, um, this unconscious, very rapid, automatic process belongs to our survival brain. These are the evolutionarily older parts of our brain. And the survival brain is what controls all of our th threat appraisal process. It's happening all the time, unconsciously, automatically. And if our survival brain perceives any current situation outside of us, inside of us, if it perceives that as threatening or challenging, it's going to turn stress arousal on. And if it perceives us to be safe, 
it's going to turn stress arousal off and turn recovery functions on. And that's really important for MFIT, being able to help direct our attention so that our survival brain perceives that we're safe and stable, and then it turns on recovery functions. That's an important part of healing and widening a window. So survival brain controls survival functions, this threat appraisal process, it has an implicit memory system, which is kind of the collection of all the prior moments of threat appraisal it's ever done. Um, and it controls recovery. Those are all survival brain functions. Survival brain's not verbal. We can't hear it. Um, we can only see its effects in our body through physical sensations, through emotions. Those are its cues to us. Thinking brain is the evolutionarily newest part of the brain. This is what Kahneman calls the thinking slow process, that very deliberate, um, it's conscious, cognitive, you know, experience, our, our conscious cognitive response to our experience. So this is thinking, paying attention, remembering things, planning, you know, task deconfliction, willpower, and explicit memory, you know, things that we intentionally call up and think about. Um, thinking brain functions get degraded when we experience prolonged stress, and they also get degraded when we experience very high stress levels like trauma. That's one of the reasons why when we've experienced trauma, we may not have a good memory of it consciously. It might be inconsistent or fragmented or, and our survival brain is remembering a whole lot because the more stress we experience, the more the survival brain learns while the thinking brain may be offline. Um, for many people who work in high stress situations, their thinking brain functions are often very degraded even two weeks of getting six hours of night of sleep is enough to begin to really degrade your thinking brain functions. It isn't like you have to be in combat. I mean, everybody can experience degradation there. Um, but as I said before, you know, our thinking brain doesn't control recovery, even though many of us think it want it to. Um, and that's why we sometimes you know, are trying to get better or trying to recover and it's not really working. So we have to work with the survival brain. Um, another thing that's really important in MFIT is understanding the autonomic nervous system. Um, this is the system that controls stress arousal and recovery, and it's linked from the survival brain down into all the organs. So it controls breathing and heart rate and digestion and elimination reproductive functions, um, all of our visceral organs. And when we become dysregulated from too much stress or too much trauma without recovery, because all these systems are linked, we can begin to see symptoms of dysregulation, all of these different systems. So part of the recovery process is also helping the, the, the nervous system to begin to recover and we use certain exercises in MFIT to direct the attention in particular ways to help that happen. I'll say one last thing here, which is that the kind of underlying principle behind any of this, wherever our attention is in any moment, consciously or unconsciously, it is affecting what our survival brain is perceiving in terms of that threat appraisal and if what we're paying attention to consciously or unconsciously 
is something that our survival brain is finding threatening or challenging, it's going to have all these ripple effects of turning stress on. So one of the really important ways to get a wider window is to become aware of where our attention is in any moment. And if it's attending to something that's making stress worse, learning how to disengage our attention and redirect our attention to something else that helps the survival brain perceive safety and stability so that it can turn stress off. That's the kind of core thing that's so important in understanding all this neurobiology. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot in what you're describing here, Liz. And I found one of the ways of referencing the survival brain and the thinking brain that was helpful to me, and I'd love for you to explain it a bit more, is that the survival brain is a type of bottom-up processing, and the thinking brain is a top-down processing. That might give our listeners some intuitive feel to how these different functions work, at least it did for me. Can you share a little bit about this notion of bottom up and top down? Thank you very much for calling that into the conversation, Tammy. So top down processing is these conscious, cognitive responses to our experience. Um, thinking, and also part of it being top down is using our willpower to, um, control or regulate our emotions or our stress or our cravings. That's what willpower is all about. That's a top-down function. It's using our most evolved parts of the brain to, to help control these different pieces. The survival brain is bottom up in that all of its communication with us comes through our body. It comes through our physical sensations, comes through our stress arousal, comes through our emotions. And as a result, um, the survival brain is always kind of interacting with and appraising our experience and then creating these physiological and emotional responses. And it's coming from underneath. As we begin to bring awareness into our mind and body through an awareness practice, like the exercises we have in MFIT, that process of bringing awareness into the body has the potential for those of us who may have narrowed windows, it has the potential to have that bottom-up processing get pretty intense. Uh, my own first experience with mindfulness practices was that way. Many of the Marines and soldiers and first responders that I've trained, it's that way. Even my Georgetown students, it's that way. Um, and so one of the important things to do with that bottom-up processing is help to pace it so we don't end up flooding ourselves because it's not under our thinking brain's control. Now, you have these other two phrases which were really useful to me, which is when we're outside of our window, it could be a survival brain hijacking or a thinking brain override that are happening. And I thought it would be useful to explain both of those ideas. And I have a third question here for you, Liz. I know you can stay with me. What's it like when we're not being hijacked by our survival brain? We're not being overridden by our thinking brain, but these two are in some kind of beautiful collaboration. You say that's what like, oh, these are, they're collaborating. I want to understand more about the collaboration. Yes. Okay. So when we are outside our window, 
when we've exceeded our stress capacity threshold. Our thinking brain functions are going to be degraded. So that's when we have trouble paying attention and our mind wanders more and we have a, you know, we might have short term memory problems. We're also more likely to um, cope and function using what I call thinking brain override, which is that powering through pattern, suppressing the body's um, uh, physical pain, suppressing the body's emotions, our physical sensations, and not really paying attention to our body's needs and our body's and mind's limits. Um, many people in our culture live in thinking brain override. Um, in fact, there is a fair amount of kind of romanticization of it. Um, the idea of grit is very much a thinking brain override way of being. And it can work for a fair amount of time. You know, in my case, it worked for three decades until the costs started coming due. Um, but eventually the costs do come due because when we are in thinking brain override, we have so shoved under emotions, stress arousal, trauma, physical pain, that it begins to just continue to build. And the more we do that, the more the survival brain feels like its message isn't getting through to us. And so the bigger the symptoms it creates to try and get our attention. I really was exhibit A of thinking brain override. The other option is survival brain hijacking. That's when our physical pain or our intense emotions or our stress arousal begin to drive our decision-making. They drive our behavior. We act out, we get very impulsive and reactive. We um, have no impulse control. We have a, you know, not to be very political, but there is a lot of survival brain hijacking in the White House right now, for example. Um, that is a, a way of being. It's outside of a window and it's letting those the stress and emotion drive behavior. When someone is in survival brain hijacking, they might have like waves of anxious thoughts or they might, you know, wake up in the middle of the night ruminating, like constantly thinking about something. Um, and these two, these two kind of patterns often go together. Like someone might function well during the day at work by using thinking brain override. Like they're just shoving it under and getting the job done. And then at night, they're, you know, acting out, having violent outbursts with their family, or they're, you know, lying awake in bed with anxious, anxious racing mind. So they're doing thinking brain override during the day and survival brain hijacking at night, but they're just two sides of that outside the window coin. Okay, so these are all examples of outside the window. What's it like when the thinking brain and survival brain aren't at odds like that? What's it like when they are working together in an allied way? Well, when they're working together in an allied way, we have much more capacity to take in information from the environment around us, see it clearly. We take in information from inside of us, our physical sensations, our emotions, our thought patterns, our impulses. And before we act on those things, we take that in as inputs along with the external pieces that are inputs. And all of it can be used together as information to make the best decision. It's a very, this is often a hard concept for my students to get 
because you know they're so used to at a very subtle level not giving into as they put it giving into their anxiety or giving into their impatience when sometimes that anxious that wave of anxiety or that wave of impatience is is really important information we need to be taking uh, note of in our decisions so being able to use all of those inputs we're going to get the best decision the one that's most authentic for our current situation the one that's most appropriate for our current situation if we're using all of that and so we, we're taking the information from the survival brain we're not necessarily acting it out but we are using it to make a good decision and then if we're at a very high arousal level we're also using these two parts of the brain together in concert to bring us back to a moderate arousal level because that's the place of optimal performance as you're talking, I'm reflecting on situations where I really had to take some time in order to digest and come into some kind of harmony in a stressful situation between my thinking mind and bottom-up emotional reactivity that was coming up. So I'm curious. It seems like sometimes we need to really know how to spend time with ourselves to digest these different inputs in order for any kind of harmony and collaboration to come into being. It can take a while, some personal work. It definitely can take a while. And actually the first step is just being able to learn all of the different tells of what is anxiety in the mind and body so that when it's happening, we know, oh, I'm anxious. Now what's that about? And then we can use that information to figure out why am I anxious? What piece am I not paying attention to here that is clearly got my survival brain upset? I need to figure out what that piece of information is and then I can make a choice. But because we, so many people in our culture live going 90 miles an hour, constantly in motion, constantly doing and moving, um, and they're constantly flipping between thinking brain override, just powering through, and then having these waves of big emotions and waves of, of, of stress that's out of, out of the window, they're never learning to do those pieces. So in MFIT, one of the core skills is learning how to, if it's a very high amount of arousal, to regulate it down so that we're back in our window so that we can take advantage of the information inherent in those cues. As you know, I've experimented with a lot of different approaches to spiritual growth. But one approach I somehow found a way to successfully avoid was anything that had to do with extreme cold immersion. That is, until I met Wim Hof, also known as the Iceman, someone I've interviewed on Insights at the Edge, and learned how controlled, no shock, cold showers are part of a practice that can help us release stress, support immune response, and deepen our awareness of the spiritual dimension of our being. Wim Hof is a bold revolutionary who believes that cold is an intelligent and righteous force. You can learn more about Wim Hof and his method at findyourcold.com.
Now, one of the other principles that you bring forward at the very beginning of Widen the Window is this notion that stress and trauma exist on a continuum. And I don't think that that was not obvious to me before I heard you say it. And then when I heard it from you, I was like, well, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious, when does stress turn into trauma? What's that line that gets crossed? Thank you for that question, Tammy. It's a great one. Um, one of the reasons why we don't think of stress and trauma as a continuum is because the people who research and treat stress and trauma are totally different communities and they're kind of talking past each other. Um, we don't tend to think of them as being the same animal, but they are, they are a continuum. So um, in MFIT and in the book, I talk about the stress equation, which is we have a stressor, the thing that our, our survival brain perceives as threatening or challenging. We have the stressor, we have that perception of threat. And when those two things are happening, we will have stress arousal. It's like a done, a neurobiological done deal. They're gonna to happen together. And if the survival brain is perceiving the stressor to be uncontrollable, unpredictable, novel, or physically threatening to our like survival or our self-identity, it's going to make more stress. Those are characteristics of stressors that make stress greater. And if the survival brain, while all that's going on, also perceives us to be helpless, powerless, and lacking control, that's the line that tips us from stress into the realm of traumatic stress. You know, the way trauma is often discussed in our culture is that it's inherent in the event. You know, trauma is a rape, or trauma is combat, or trauma is a natural disaster. But it isn't. Trauma is an internal mind-body response, and we're each going to have different responses. You know, if we're going, if we perceive an event as really threatening, and we perceive ourselves as powerless, we're going to be traumatized in that event. If we perceive event as really challenging, but we still feel empowered and agency, we're not going to be traumatized in that event. So, where we fall on this continuum from stress and trauma during any particular threatening or challenging situation is determined by how our own survival brain is perceiving that threat, um, what, how it's doing it in that moment. And the width of our window will have a big effect on that. So if our window is narrow, we're much more likely to perceive that stressor in a way that we feel powerless and we end up in trauma. If our window is wider, even if we turn on a lot of stress, we're not gonna feel quite so powerless, we're not gonna be traumatized. So, you know, in the book, I use the example of 13 people on an infantry squad going through an ambush. You know, many people would think of an ambush as traumatic, but not all 13 of those people are necessarily going to experience trauma because there's 13 different minds and bodies that are meeting that ambush with 13 different widths of, you know, windows of different widths. And then there's going to be 13 different responses. Some might be mild stress, some might be very traumatized. It has to do with the mind and body we bring to the event. So how do you increase people's sense of agency, sense of choice when they're under intense stress? Well, um, one of the reasons I like to use the stress equation as kind of a framing device for this idea is that often when we have turned stress on, 
our thinking brains devalue or dismiss, oh, I shouldn't be stressed right now, or this really isn't that challenging a thing. You know, this isn't combat. Why am I having a problem? Or so-and-so doesn't have a problem with this. And our thinking brains get all these judgments about the fact that we've, that we're stressed right now. And that actually makes it worse. The whole reason I use the equation is to highlight how much we're turning on stress has to do with what our survival brain is perceiving. And initially, you know, the most power over the long term, the most influence on the stress equation of the long term is changing how we perceive a stressor. But in the short term, the way we get there is that when stress has already been turned on, if we work with it effectively and we can recover from it so that we're not staying in an you know, aroused state, that teaches our survival brain that we can go through stress and not have it be a big deal. That process changes our survival brain's implicit memory so that the next time we encounter that situation, it's not gonna turn on quite as much stress. That's how we begin to shift that perception. It all has to do with once stress has arisen, choosing to work with it effectively. And that's what we teach in MFIT, how to do that moment by moment. When stress is there, we can't control that the stress is there, but we can always choose what we do with it. Mm -hmm. Now, you've met a couple times mentioned recovery, the importance of recovery. So recovery from some type of super stressful event. And you've said that it's our survival brain that is really what's important when it comes to recovery. So help me understand that. And how am I going to recover? I'm thinking of certain ordinary stressors that I find that going to the dentist or something like that, that I notice I go to this place of feeling kind of traumatized by it, even though other people might not. And I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do? How am I going to use my survival brain in these situations to come back strong? So two things we can do in that situation, Tammy. So as you're going into, let's say you're going to the dentist, you're, you're not there yet, but you arrive and you sit down in the chair and you're starting to feel yourself getting stressed. You might be noticing some butterflies in your stomach. Maybe your sh breathing got shallow. Maybe your hands got clammy. You can, in that moment of recognizing, okay, my survival brain has perceived this to be threatening. It's turned stress on. You have a choice in that moment, having seen the stresses here, you can redirect your attention to something that the survival brain is not going to find threatening. So in MFIT, one of the real target objects of attention for survival brain to perceive safety is the contact between our body and whatever's around us. So if you're sitting there in the dentist chair, you have the whole backside of your body there, you know, in that, that chair as you're lying back, you, instead of paying attention to those sensations of stress, or instead of having your mind wander, like how long, you wonder how long am I gonna be here and what are we gonna do today? Just redirect your attention to that weightedness of the chair. As simple and bizarre as that sounds, that is enough of an intentional cue to help the survival brain remember you are stable and safe. And the arousal begins to shift. Now I had um, a gum graft surgery. I talk about it late in the book where you know, I was doing fine. I was with eye contact point in the back of the chair as the periodontist is like, you know, cutting my mouth open. It's totally fine there. And then there was this moment when I, my thinking brain had the image of, oh my gosh, he has just sliced open half of my cheek and he's peeling it back to put, you know, some tissue in there. And that image of it 
in my mind, having that image turned my survival brain just to freak out. And I had such high arousal levels, like my, my, um, it's like I was losing my attentional focus like that, you know, when you're about to pass out, you know, it, it, it gets very dark and, and I got very woozy and, um, the dentist realized it and he shoved gauze in my mouth and he stepped away for a moment and I was able to go back to my contact points. And in that moment I did some recovery. So as I went to my contact points after that very high arousal level, what was started happening that showed me my system was recovering was that I exhibited signs of the parasympathetic nervous system coming online. I yawned, I got really hot. I had like some little tears on the sides of my eyes, you know, little, little tears over here. I started feeling some like rushes of tingles down my arm. Then I had a wave of chills and then everything was fine. And I was back fully in my body and the stress was gone. So there's kind of recovery at a, you know, kind of macro level, but the kind of recovery I'm talking about and that we teach in MFIT is how to direct our attention in ways to help the body recover at this very biological way. Um, I hope that made sense. It did. And this teaching on contact points and giving our weight into the contact points, that seems like it's something people can really get a sense of. So I want to make sure that people get that as a practical takeaway. I mean, if you're walking, it could be the contact point of your feet on the ground, or yes. as you said, the back of a chair. So what do I do once I'm paying attention? I know I need to find a place of safety. I'm paying attention to the contact point. Do I just give my weight in and breathe? So the best thing to do is to direct the attention to all the sensations at that point. There might be dampness, there might be sweatiness, there might be heat or coolness, there might be pressure, hardness, softness, sometimes itchiness. Um, and we're not thinking about the contact. We're actually noticing these kind of physical qualities of contact and keep redirecting the attention there. And if the mind wanders off, it might get bored. Sometimes it does, it wanders, it's okay. Just keep redirecting it to the contact. Um, when we're sitting, we have our butt and the backs of our legs with the chair. We have the feet with the floor, have our hands touching the lap. And for some people, when they first try this, they might not be able to notice sensations of contact. So for them, the first couple times, it can help to like really push your feet in the floor or sit bare feet so that there's sort of more tactile sensation there. Or you can rub your hands up and down your legs, feeling that contact, you know, of the of the fabric against the under, you know, the palms of your hands as you rub them. One of my favorite places to do contact points is sitting outside or standing outside against a tree, you know, feeling the, the trunk of the tree against the back of your body. Nature is very regulated. And so when we're in contact with physical contact with nature, um, it actually can help support that recovery as well. And it's really important when we're using the contact points exercise to sit with our back against a solid wall. We don't want to sit in an open space with our back in an open space or sit again facing a, you know, with a back to the door, back to the window, because then the survival brain is always wondering what's going on back there. So you want it to kind of be really focused on the contact and a solid wall helps it get safe. Now, Liz, I know that you're trained as a somatic experiencing 
practitioner, which is a body-based approach uh, developed by Peter Levine for healing trauma. And part of what really interested me in MFIT is this trauma-sensitive approach to mindfulness training. And I'd love to know more about how you present mindfulness training differently because of your training as a somatic experiencing practitioner and also because of your own trauma and discoveries. When I was first learning mindfulness meditation, the first practice I learned was awareness of breathing. And in fact, that's often the practice that most mindfulness teachers start with. And the reason they do is they think breathing is this relatively neutral stimuli. Well, that isn't the case for those of us who are sitting on large stress loads from lots of prior chronic stress without recovery or prior traumatic experience without recovery. Um, in fact, if anyone has experienced a history of trauma or asthma or a near-death experience or a near drowning, any traumatic experience, they go into a freeze response. And when the nervous system is in freeze, we have oxygen conservation and breath constriction. Um, so for those of us with those experiences, if you bring your attention fully to breathing, you have the potential to have the survival brain tap in to a prior unresolved traumatic memory capsule related to breath because in any in Emory memory capsule, there is a breathing component to it because we were always breathing during those events. And in my initial practice, that's what was happening with me. So sometimes, you know, my mind would be racing, but sometimes I would be practicing and I would flip into this like massive panic. I get really anxious. I would feel like I couldn't breathe, that I was, you know, gasping for air. And it makes sense. I had completely stopped breathing in Bosnia. I had a near-death experience that had killed my breathing for a chunk of time. So I was tapping into those memory capsules, but I didn't know that. And then afterwards, for the next several days, I would be just horribly traumatized again. I would be catatonic. I couldn't get out of bed. I'd be claustrophobic. I would have nightmares. I would have nausea. I couldn't eat. And I didn't understand how these pieces fit together. And I assumed I just must be doing this wrong. And I'd try again. And I would just sort of grit my teeth and do it. And of course, anytime I was gritting my teeth and doing it, I was just reinforcing my thinking brain override again. I wasn't actually helping. I was making it worse. I was really re-traumatizing my survival brain. I didn't begin to understand that this was what was going on until the first pilot study that we did in 2008 with a group of Marines that were preparing to deploy to Iraq. And there were 40 men in this group. And it quickly became clear that they were all having very similar experiences. In fact, six out of 10 of them, 60% of them were coping with major symptoms of dysregulation, either from prior combat deployments or this was a reservist unit. So some of them worked in SWAT teams, there were firefighters, there were EMTs, and you know, even those who hadn't been to combat, they had these stressful civilian day jobs and they were sitting on a lot of unresolved stress and trauma. And when I started seeing their reactions, I began to realize, oh, this wasn't just me. This is, this is something that happens. When we're dysregulated, 
the process of um, interoceptive functioning is what allows us to pay attention to sensations in our body and regulate them. It allows us to pay attention to emotional states and regulate them. But for people with narrowed windows, um, that interoceptive functioning gets compromised. Um, it's especially compromised for those of us who come from histories of a lot of childhood stress and childhood trauma. But for anyone even in adulthood, if they are currently suffering from depression or anxiety disorders or PTSD or addictions, they have compromised interoceptive functioning. And when these people, and I, I was one of these people too, um, when, when those of us who have these narrowed windows sit down and practice mindfulness, it has this potential to tap into some of these unresolved memory capsules and then flood the survival brain and make our symptoms worse. So once I understood all that, and I was in the middle of going through my somatic experience in clinical training, at the time I was working with that first group of Marines. So I started connecting these dots. I realized we need to really go gradually and we really need to sequence which target objects of attention we're paying attention to so that our survival brain can slowly, gradually build up this capacity to tolerate awareness in the body in a way that's safe without flooding and re-traumatizing. And that's why we start with contact points. It is the first exercise in the sequence because the stimuli, the awareness of sensations of contact is so grounding and stabilizing for the survival brain. I don't teach awareness of breathing until the fifth week I, like, there's a whole lot of other stuff that happens first to help the survival brain know what to do if, and help the person know what to do in case that flooding happens. Because if we can redirect our attention somewhere else, it's fine. But if we don't know that, we can inadvertently be making it worse. Mm -hmm. So by changing the sequence of how you introduce various exercises and by starting with contact points. Then when you introduce awareness of breathing later on in the MFIT training, what does someone do who has these trauma capsules? You introduce awareness of breathing and they have the same experience that you described six out of 10 of these Marines went through in the research study. What do they do then? It's only week five. So by then they've already learned the, the core exercise for recovery, which is called ground and release. They already know how to do ground and release. So if they're paying attention to breathing and they notice themselves getting activated, they notice their heart rate is increasing or their breath is getting shallow or they're getting a pit in their stomach or they're having an image of something from the, you know, the past, they know at that moment to disengage from awareness of breathing and they switch over to using the ground and release exercise and they discharge all of that stress activation that's come up. And in the process of doing that, they are starting to heal that memory capsule because what the survival brain implicit memory learns in that process is, oh, I can experience this unresolved thing and it's not gonna take over. I have agency here. This is how we learn agency, how we train our survival brain to, to gain agency in these very micro ways that then have kind of global effects in our lives. Um, so 
no one learns awareness of breathing until they know how to work with what potentially might happen. And that's why we wait till the fifth week. Um, there's a lot more movement exercises in MFIT compared to many other mindfulness programs. Um, the exercises are much shorter in length, partly because we have to build up tolerance for awareness of what's going on in our system. And many of the exercises can be integrated into daily life because people who work in high stress environments are really, really busy. And it's great to be able to integrate the exercises into what they're doing during the day so that they're more effective with what they're doing and they're getting practice in at the same time. Mm -hmm. Now, I realize you designed MFIT for people who work in high stress occupations, as we've described, and starting with the military where you began and then expanding to all these other professions of first responders. But I think a lot of people would say we're all in a high stress situation today, all of us. I don't know anyone who's not. And yeah. I, I wonder if you think, oh my, MFIT actually became universally applicable. <laughs> I absolutely think MFIT became universally applicable. I actually think it was universally applicable before that point because we all have minds and bodies that are moving through challenges all the time. And we are all wired as social animals. And so we're always picking up the stress and dysregulation of people around us. Um, and if we don't know how to work with that, we have the potential to constantly kind of, even for those of us that are most regulated, we could potentially be making ourselves more stressed. We are living in an environment right now with COVID, with all of the protests, with racism and, and um, social injustice, with this challenging electoral season, with all of the physical challenges from global warming. Like there's just so many things going on, homeschooling, working from home, difficulties with boundaries uh, between work and your home space. It's just, it is challenging. And this is applicable to all of us right now. And I think it's also incumbent on all of us right now to do what we can to keep our own windows wide because our individual window kind of contributes to the collective window. And the collective window today is very narrow and we want to help it get widened because the challenges facing us need creative problem solving. They need clear thinking and wise choices. Um, and that's only gonna happen if we can approach it with wide windows. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. I realize the window is a metaphor. And, you know, sometimes when narrow windows, wide windows, it's almost like it's a, a static idea, but it's not. It's incredibly dynamic. Yes. I mean, in any given moment, our window could be much bigger or much smaller. It's not like, oh, that's a wide window person or a narrow window. It seems like that could be too pigeonholing. Rigid. It, yes, you're absolutely right. It could be pigeonholing. Um, and I don't want to do that because small shifts that we make in the course of a day can have tremendous effects on our window for the rest of that day. Um, so yes, understanding that and knowing some of the things we can do, and they don't have to be big things. It doesn't have to be like, you know, we have to spend a year. It just little things can make a tremendous difference and have yeah. these big resonating and rippling effects on the people around us, on the world around us. Now, there's one more topic that I want to take the lid off of, which is you mentioned in the very beginning of our conversation that you came from 
nine generations of a family that served in the military, a warrior lineage. And in that, that there was quite a lot of intergenerational trauma passed down. Now, you also write in your book, Widening the Window, about trauma extinction. And I was like, really? Really? Is there such a thing? Can we actually resolve extinction, extinguish the trauma in our lives and that we've inherited? Is that possible? Well, trauma extinction is the term that is used by the neuroscientists who write in this literature. I'm using their word. It wasn't my word initially. Um, and one of the reasons why trauma extinction is hard is that the pathways in the brain when we have been traumatized that are going from the survival brain up to the thinking brain kind of overpower the thinking brain pathways back down. Um, so that's what they talk about. I don't know if we can fully extinguish it. We are the accumulation of all of our repeated experiences. We can decondition it to the point that the default programming that got wired through trauma is no longer driving our behavior and our choices and our perception. We have a lot more flexibility and choice to sometimes use those responses, but not have to default into those responses. In terms of intergenerational trauma, there have been so many studies in the last 20 years that have started looking at kind of the neurobiological mechanisms by which trauma is passed intergenerationally. And it's really hard to disentangle in humans because our process of wiring our brains and our nervous system, you know, the nervous system continues wiring until our late teens, at least the part of the nervous system that controls recovery. That part doesn't exist when we're first born and it wires only after birth up till when we're 18. And the thinking brain functions, they continue wiring all the way until our early 30s. So as a result, the experiences that we have in our early social environment, especially repeated experiences, have a big effect on how we wire, whether we wire on all of the social engagement capacities and recovery function capacities and all the thinking brain capacities. And if our parents experienced chronic stress and trauma or loss and they didn't fully recover from it, their windows get narrowed. That affects the way that they care for us early on and that affects our wiring. So that's one way that, that, the, that the process transmits. Another way that the process transmits is through stress and emotion contagion. So there have been several studies that have looked at how you know parents who are stressed, they then check and with stress hormones active, they check the stress hormone levels in their children and they're matched, even though it's the parent's stressor, something that kid has no contact with, but it's passing through. And then one of the really biggest ways that um, intergenerational trauma shows up is in epigenetics. So epigenetics is the science of um, how repeated experience affects our gene expression. And epigenetic changes, which is you know, turning a gene expression on or off, those epigenetic changes can convey through multiple generations. So most of the studies that have shown this most clearly have been with rodents. They have shorter lifespans 
They don't have all of this complicating long wiring process like we humans. So they can really just look at the epigenetic piece. And they have you know, a, a mouse um, or a rat and they expose them to really stressful situation. That mouse or rat is experiencing repeated stress and then they see epigenetic changes in their metabolism or in the way that they um, perceive safety. They stop perceiving safety, they stop moving to safety or changes in their immune function. And then they have babies and they have babies and they have babies. Four generations away, even though the other mice throughout those other generations had none of the same stressors, they have that same epigenetic change turned on. And for humans, one of the biggest detrimental epigenetic changes comes from chronic stress. It turns on chronic inflammation in our body. Um, and that is linked underneath a whole bunch of physical and mental health issues. And so when people say, well, you know, these genes run in my family, it's often that there is an epigenetic change that has run through multiple generations. We can heal that and turn that off. Like there were epigenetic changes turned on in me as a result of my parents and their parents. And I have been able to reverse some of those things through repeated experiences in this lifetime. Is that trauma extinction? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Now, Liz, it was about a year ago, I think, that you and I started talking on the phone about Sounds True bringing the MFIT program online and having it widely available as an eight-week training program. And, you know, everything in me lit up for a couple reasons. One, that the program would be a trauma-sensitive, trauma-informed mindfulness training. I could intuitively, I knew that was so important. And then secondly, it was so important, I think, to both of us that we make the program as widely available as possible and remove barriers to access for active military and veterans and people in the police force and firefighters and emergency responders of all kinds. And through the Sounds True Foundation, that kind of access is available. So I want to say to people who are listening, you can go to soundstruefoundation.org and there's a contact page. And if you're in touch with an organization that supports those people who are working for our collective good, and you would like access to the MFIT online training, to please write to us. But here at the end of our conversation, what I wanted to hear from you, Liz, is your greatest hope for this online training that you've invested so much of your life into creating and designing so intentionally. Tammy, I was so happy when we started our conversations and it has been such a pleasure and honor to work with the Sounds True team. And I'm so excited about the version of the program that we've created for online users. Um, the way that it is in sort of small digestible pieces that somebody can work into their life. And at the time we started this, we were not all working in this virtual world where everybody is you know, doing things remotely. But now, especially when we are in this time of really remote um, uh, engagement, it's like the perfect time for people to be using this. My biggest intention and hope, my biggest hope, I guess, is that as many people as possible who want to be feeling more empowered 
during the uncertainty and stress of what is going on in our world today, that they take advantage of this and that they learn new ways of being in the world that have these potential ripple effects to others. I mean, I love the fact that resilience is a gift we don't just give ourselves, it's a gift we give to the world around us. And there are so many people who are at wit's end right now, and I want them to have this gift and to be able to share this gift with the people in their lives through the changes that they make in their own minds and bodies. Um, so my gift is that my my hope is that this is is really um, that people take take us up on it, and I am so glad that that we have this capacity to share it freely with people who are working in stressful situations, teachers, medical people, police, firefighters, um, veterans, uh, people who are helping to keep our society, serving our society. I'd like us to be able to give back to them. You're here. The MFIT online training is now available at soundstrue.com. You can check that out as well as Liz Stanley's book, Widen the Window, Training Your Brain and Body to Thrive During Stress and Recover from Trauma. Liz, great talking to you and thank you so much for everything that you've poured into the creation of MFIT. It's an honor to partner with you to bring it online. Thank you. Tammy, it's been an honor to partner with you too. And thank you for this great conversation today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.